Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. In tough times like these, it's important for all of us to have places and spaces where difficult conversations are possible and fortifying. But where are those places? And who has stepped into the void left by institutions that used to create the possibilities for these discussions? We're going to talk today with Anna Sale, who's host of the podcast Death, Sex, and Money, and author of Let's Talk About Hard Things and hear her advice for all of us. That's next on Detroit Today. But first, the news from NPR. Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. As always, I'm really glad you've decided to join us. How do you talk about difficult things? Subjects like love or death or money or sex? Do you have people or places that make you more comfortable when you want to talk about these things? And when you do, how does it build you up to be able to know that, uh, hey, there's somebody who understands what I'm experiencing and where I'm coming from, what I'm feeling? I think these are tougher questions to answer right now, maybe more than ever before. We're two years into a pandemic that has disrupted nearly every sector of our lives. And the places that so many of us enjoy and turn to for solace, schools, churches, bars, have become more restricted than ever before. And they're sometimes even scary places to go, just to go and be. All of these changes are, of course, taking a real toll on our mental health, and depression and anxiety numbers are sky high by almost every measure. And that means people are having difficult conversations in smaller spaces between friends and loved ones, but they're doing it very often without the support that they need. They're doing it without the institutions that used to kind of set the stage for the ways in which we confront these subjects. And that lack of institutional support goes beyond just the pandemic. Topics like death and grief and romance and identity are increasingly left up to individuals to navigate alone without the kind of support that would make those conversations easier and more natural. That's where we want to begin the conversation today, talking about how we talk about really difficult subjects, whom we talk with about those subjects, where we do it, and how we do it. 
Journalist Anna Sale has been talking with people about these kind of difficult conversations for a really long time now. She hosts a really popular podcast called Death, Sex, and Money. And she recently published a book titled Let's Talk About Hard Things, where she explores emotionally weighty topics with a lot of different people. Anna Sale, it is really great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. Oh, Stephen, thank you for having me. I'm so glad to be here. Yeah. So let's start with uh, what is happening with the way we talk about tough things. Individuals and families are adopting more of a burden now, I think, because in general, they don't trust the institutions that used to frame, I think, the context for these conversations as much as they did in the past. So let's talk about what that change looks like. Uh, Why is it that we feel we're more on our own when it comes to plotting our stories of success and salvation than uh, in the past? Yeah, I, I really like the way that you framed it because um, it's it's really a key sort of argument of my book, which is, you know, of course, hard things have always been a part of life, you know, death and grief, sex and love, um, figuring out who we are, figuring out how to survive and make money, like none of this is new. Um, but as I was writing, you know, what, what I do think is new um, is this shift from being able to... Um, lean more on ritual and institutions as a place to go, um, to turn to, to help guide these kinds of conversations. And, you know, in a lot of ways that has changed in our lives, mm-hmm. you know, think about, you know, church going trends, for example, uh, have, have, have fallen a lot in the last 50 years in America, but also like think about money and banking, you know, like, I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, you know, my parents had a set of people that they would go to at the bank in town, you would Mm -hmm. sit at a desk and you would talk to a person face to face. All of my sort of figuring out how to deal with money in my 20s and 30s, I'm now in my early 40s, has been me and my laptop and like, (laughs) looking, you know, (laughs) trying to figure out, oh, is this how one does it? You know, Um, and so what I found is in my life, you know, when I became a parent, I needed to turn to fellow parents of young kids and say, my God, how do you pay for childcare? How are you doing this? Mm -hmm. And having these one-on-one conversations that felt really risky to start because they're not something that we are sort of um, taught how to do to like cross that line into like, let's actually talk about, you know, the nuts and bolts of money, um, for example. And so that's the broader argument of my book, which is, which is even if you don't want to have these conversations, if you consider them sort of like, I don't know, a little bit like oversharing or it's just (laughs) not your style. um, In fact, like you have to, and when you do it with the people in your life, your neighbors, your friends, your family members, what you're doing is you're sort of fortifying and building back this sense of not being on your own, this sense of community that I do think is really important. So that's what can happen when you do lean into these conversations. You're building something um, relational. Yeah. So, so the individualism, though, that you're talking about, you know, it it leaves people feeling really lonely and anxious and overwhelmed and and vulnerable. Um, uh, you know, I, I guess one of the questions is, uh, 
whether this distance from institutions is something that is kind of perpetrated by the institutions themselves and the change of those institutions, or is it that we have left those institutions? Uh, Is it us um, who are driving that and then, of course, suffering the consequences and and complaining about it, right? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really both and. You know, I think often in our politics you hear either arguments about why we ought to return to these kind of – traditional institutions as a place of of solace, or you hear, listen to all these ways these institutions have been oppressive. I I, I think both things are true. Like we get something from being part of institutions, um, but also uh, they are hierarchical. They can be exclusive. They can, you know, cover secrets. They can, they can cause pain. Um, And so I, I don't, I'm not necessarily making the argument that, that, um, that we need to return to what was um, in, with some nostalgic view. I'm just saying, like, let's acknowledge that how our society operates is different. Um, and when more of us are moving on our own, moving around on our own, navigating these big life um, moments on our own, I think what what you lose when you're not kind of part of um, larger institutions or larger groups um, could be the word or communities, you lose the ability to have sort of like pattern recognition, you know, like when you are in grief, it can feel like the most isolating, foreign, like, what is this? What is happening to me? Experience. And if you aren't surrounded by people who have said, yeah, that's what it was like when in the first three months after my husband died, well, this is what it was like three years after I lost my child. Like when you don't have that sense of like um, what you're experiencing is, 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 is not just your own sense of isolation. It's, it's something that is um, part of an experience. Um, then you kind of, it, 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 it compounds the isolation. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, stigma and and shame and experiencing things on your own compounds the pain of what is already hard thing to go through. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we need to have these conversations to to be able to sort of unburden ourselves, I guess, of some of those feelings that you're that you're talking about. Um, and I know that a lot of us have a hard time even beginning to think about whom to have those conversations with or how to have those conversations or or where. And in in this book, I think you do a really wonderful job of talking about how many people have have navigated that and found and found some success. So so talk about the ways in which we're adapting, I guess, to this and and the ways in which some of us are are figuring out how to get the things that we need um, out of uh, being able to talk about these these difficult subjects. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's there's different tactics that one can have if you're thinking, you know, I have this thing that I'm struggling with. Who Who do I talk to? How do I talk to this person? Um, is it going to make them uncomfortable that I'm having going through this hard thing? And how do I manage that? You know, so there are all those choices you have to make about who's the person that, that's the right person to confide in. 
Um, and, and then there's the how, right? Um, but, but I think one of the, the big things that I would start with is I think often conversations about hard things, whether it's grief, as I was just talking about, or like, you know, struggling with not having enough work or feeling like, um, you know, you're, you're not where you need to be to feel financially stable. And that can be a really hard conversation to have. I think when you are someone who um, is talking to someone who's bringing a hard thing like that to you, the impulse is often like, okay, I'm going to go into solutions gear and I'm going to like help this person through this hard thing. And so often that takes the shape of something like saying, oh, well, how about like, can I, let, let's workshop on your resume and da, 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 da. let's like, let's look at these job listings, you know, really trying to get in and like solve the problem. When it's grief, it can look like things like saying, oh, this, will, you know, I know it's really hard, but this will pass. You're kind of, kind of having that impulse to sort of minimize the experience. Mm-hmm. Um but what I really argue in the book is when is a really important principle is to, as a listener, learn to sit with the discomfort of hearing somebody's difficulty yeah. and saying, oh, I'm so sorry, um, because a conversation is not going to fix the loss of death. A conversation is not going to change the material reality of your friend who's struggling with money, but what it will do is it will give them an outlet to say, you know, and to feel heard. And that is meaningful. That is not, you're not fixing the problem, but that's, but that's doing something big. Yeah. And I, I, I feel like sometimes right now, especially that's hard for us because there's so much that is, off kilter for so many of us and and we're our heads are full of the things that are going wrong around us and the things that that don't make sense anymore i mean if you think of the things that we've all been through there's just there's just so much that all of us are dealing with and it becomes harder i think to even try to relate to what is going on for someone else, I mean, I, I think there's an instinct to 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 compare uh, instantly and say, "Well, I I know this person is really struggling, and I hear what they're saying, but my goodness, you know, uh, I, I lost seven people in the pandemic. I I, I can't yeah. do this right now, right? Um, yeah. It yeah. just it just becomes it's more difficult than it used to be. I absolutely, and I and I think even. Even if you haven't had that kind of profound loss, if you just have experienced a sense of like kind of losing um, a sense of the social landscape or the scaffolding of just like how mm-hmm. life works. Like mm-hmm. I, I had lunch with a friend outside yesterday that I hadn't seen in a couple of years and I was on my way back home and I was like, oh my God, I just really like... I seemed like an angst, like machine. <laughs> like I had just, it was, ugh. and I had to like sit with that feeling of like, oh god, I feel a little like clumsy, and maybe like, and you know, my my picking up on social cues is a little off, and I needed to just like let it out. Um, and and I hope he, I hope that's okay. Um, 
but you know, like that's, that's where we are right now. We're all kind of like, you know, just like when we were in middle school, figuring out how to relate to one another. Like we're all kind of in that moment of just like, how does this work? (laughs) You know? Um, And to try to extend a little grace to yourself. But I, I do try to kind of, um, uh, my default is to try to be open about what's not all buttoned up um, mm. because mm. I think there aren't many of us whose lives are completely buttoned up right now. And so when you create those openings to just kind of say, eh, here's what I'm having a hard time with. How about you? Yeah. Um, then you can have a real conversation. Yeah. Uh, I'm talking with Anna Sale, who is the host of a really great podcast called Sex, Death, and Money. Uh, she's also the author of a new book, Let's Talk About Hard Things, where she explores really emotionally weighty topics with many different people and talks to them about how they discuss those things, where they discuss those things, with whom they discuss those things. Uh, Anna, I want to talk specifically about a, a, a part of your book. As I said, it's full of people having these hard conversations uh, about these subjects. And in the chapter on death, you write about a woman named Megan who lost her husband to an accidental death after diving into a river. Um, but I want you to talk about uh, the texting system that Megan's friend developed to comfort her, but also to allow her space to be alone. I think that's a really important kind of uh, balance to strike in all in all of this. Oh, I just loved this story. I thought it was so um, loving. Um, this woman, Megan Devine, she's a she's a, a, a grief counselor, um, and she lost her partner in a in a sudden drowning accident. Her life just changed in an instant, and she described to me, you know, you have it. it when you have something like that happen in your life, um, you know, she described like your every, like 99% out of every unit of energy that you have goes toward convincing yourself of this reality, like every day, just, she described this sort of exhaustion of just trying to integrate Mm. this new fact into her life. And she said, you know, what was so challenging when you're in that kind of deep grief is the people who love you and who desperately want to offer some comfort, um, they end up also taking energy, requiring energy to manage that intake of care. You know, um, people who, who will say things like, um, you know, let me know if I can do anything. And which is something I have said before. And Megan said to me, you know, let me just tell you for someone in deep grief, the idea that they can, number one, like think about what they need and then think about which which of their friends is the person to satisfy that need and then make that ask. Like, it's not going to happen. Like, it's much more um, loving to just sort of show up, drop the casserole dish off on the doorstep, that sort of thing. Um, But she described this friend saying, like, I understand that you need this space while you're mourning. And I, and I, but I, I have to tell you, like, I worry about you when I don't hear from you. Mm. I, I want to know that you're okay. And so they developed this system where her friend would say, I just, I'm thinking about you. If you're, if you are okay and you just need some space on your own, text me back an asterisk 
you know, the little star. Mm-hmm. And so that was what they would do. Her friend could sort of shoot up a signal and say, I'm thinking about you, I love you, and I'm worrying about you. And Megan could just say, star, and say, you know, I'm not really in the mood to take a call. I'm doing okay. You don't need to worry about me or bang on my door. Like, but thank you. And they didn't have to have a conversation about it. I thought it was I, I, such a such a smart tool um, for for communicating and expressing love between the two of them. Yeah, that that idea of tailoring, I guess, the way that you respond to somebody and thinking of specifically what they need as individuals, not just the general idea that that people have needs, but what does this person need and how can I best uh, how can I best accommodate that? I mean, that, that is, um, you know, I, I feel like that is the relationship building that you're talking about here in, the, in, in this book. That is how we build uh, the replacements, I guess, for for these institutions that we've lost. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with Anna Sale, author of Let's Talk About Hard Things. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. joined us. My guest this hour is Anna Sale. She is the host of the Dex Death, Sex, and Money award-winning podcast on WNYC. She's also author of a new book called Let's Talk About Hard Things. She and I are talking right now about how we have discussions about difficult subjects, love or money or grief, uh, and especially how we do it in a time when so much around us is disrupted by the pandemic and that all of our routines are disrupted and the spaces where we build the relationships uh, where we might talk about these things are also disrupted. Uh, Let's start today on the phones with Ken in Midtown. Ken, welcome to the show. Yes. Good good morning. Hey. Good morning to your guest. Mm -hmm. Hi. Go ahead, Ken. Yeah, go ahead, Ken. Yes, you know about grief. One number one, when someone is going through a uh, death, you should never tell them I know how you feel because sometimes people get offended when you say that because we know we are we they don't understand what we mean when we say that. Uh, we say it out of love, mm-hmm. but uh, that's the wrong thing to say. Also. You know, a grief, uh, 
grief counseling meeting, you know, at a church I used to belong to, I was in this grief uh, uh, program. We had a grief thing once a month, and you learn a lot by. But there's a lot of things you you can do to, you know, uh, to join grief ministries or uh, get help. But and also another thing, never make financial decisions at, when you're going through grieving because mm. a lot of times people come to you trying to sell you this and <laughs> have you sign in this catch you off guard yeah. but uh, yeah. I always can... there's ways to say you just tell them you love them and you're thinking about praying with them so Ken I, I'm curious uh, right now given all of the things the restrictions that we live with uh, some of the things you're talking about doing don't seem like they're entirely possible right now. Uh, are, are you finding ways to continue to, to work in this space, helping people with grief, even though we're supposed to stay away from each other, for instance, and, and certainly not, uh, not be in close contact? What, 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 what does that look like for you right now? A couple family members that have passed away, uh, one for uh, due to this virus, them up for a long mm. illness for sister. Mm. So uh, you call up um, the family members and talk to them. You know, just you don't have to always. Uh, I'm just saying, you just call every now and then to see how they're doing. You know, just to comfort them, let them know that you're thinking about them, still having, leaving them alone, and nothing like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's the best way. But Ken, I, I really appreciate the call and uh, you sharing that 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 experience. Um, I mean, it sounds like you've got a, a pretty good grasp of how to how to manage uh, around all of all of these things. Anna Sale, I wonder what uh, your reaction is to Ken's call. Well, I just love that Ken, you know, recommended the idea of picking up the phone and calling mm-hmm. um, because, uh, you know, for some of us, that's that's well-worn muscle memory, but for others of us, particularly young people, like phone calls are out, you know? (laughs) So (laughs) I just think that that sentiment of like, oh, this person popped into my head. I'm going to just give them a quick call. And it doesn't have to be a conversation about hard things. It can just be that like, huh, I was thinking about you. How you doing? You know, and then it might be, you might be reaching them in a moment when they, when they need to talk or they might not pick up the phone. But it's that reaching out, um, I think, that's really critical right now, as you say, Stephen, at a time when, you know, we're, a lot of us are, are, are much more on our own than, than, than we are used to being. Mm, yeah, yeah. Uh, again, Ken, I really appreciate the call and uh, you sharing that experience. Let's go next to Nikki in Royal Oak. Nikki, welcome to the show. Hi. Hey. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So I have a question for the author about, um, like, dealing with grief. Um, sometimes when people are grieving, there's expectations based on family, on um, your own family and the family that the person comes to, and kind of like grief comes in all different ways. So what would you say to people that kind of see grief and don't get the reaction or like the feeling that they think they should get when they are talking to them? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, obviously the ways that we experience grief and the way that we, the ways that we move through grief are, are, are very, you know, 
culturally specific and about you know what our families are like. Um, and but but one thing that I heard a lot talking to people who had been in deep grief is um, feeling that uh, sort of unspoken pressure of the person who is offering comfort to you needing to feel like you were saying you're doing a good job comforting me <laughs> um, and how how uh, how much energy that takes um, and so in in what I have found in talking to to my friends who who have who have lost very close loved ones is like you know I try to be that friend where um, they can be a little bit messier. You know, they can have their moment of being really angry. Um, they can have their moment of just being tired of feeling stuck um, with the heaviness of grief. Um, and, and uh, you know, not be that person in their life where they have to um, show or demonstrate some kind of progress towards quote-unquote healing. Mm. Um, because, uh, you know, no matter what kind of family you come from, you're going to have somebody in your life who's, <laughs> who's going to like, yeah. you know, need that affirmation. Um, but, but, you know, that's, that's how I tr- try to be in conversation with people about grief is to sort of let it be messy and let it be unresolved. Yeah. Nikki, is that, is that what your experience with grief has been? Yes. I, I'm a nurse. So I've seen a uh, lot of different families yeah. and a lot of different mm. ways of them grieving. So I was just, yeah, that was exactly what I needed to hear. Yeah. Yeah. Nikki, I really appreciate uh, the call and the really provocative question. Thank you. And um, thanks for your work, Nikki, right now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's go next to Adrian in Detroit. Adrian. Welcome Good to the morning. Show. Hey. Good morning. This is a two-hour show, is it not? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, Adrian. It is one hour. <laughs> so if I may tell you, I love this conversation. Uh, Ken, who was absolutely awesome when he said, don't tell anyone you know how they feel, even if it's the same circumstances. Mm-hmm. And please, people, don't ask what happened to him. Because the person that's grieving don't want to rehash this over and over again. And if I may mention, be my I lost my only son when he was 27. Mm. And you would have thought I had the plague because anyone that had a son the same age, they would avoid me. And I don't mm. know if they didn't want to deal with the pain that I was exhibiting. Mm. But I say, uh, like your uh, visitor said, just sit and listen. You don't have to say a word. If you know that person likes coffee, bring them a cup of coffee and you can just disappear. Or I always try to use humor because I love to see you smile. And I know sooner or later your son will shine again. But it is never sit there and just offer information. It is the ear that they want to hear. Wow. Wow, Adrian. First of all, I, I didn't know about uh, I didn't know about your son, um, but I'm really sorry uh, about that, and I'm sorry about the experience you had with people around you and the way they reacted. And I think uh, that's not an uncommon uh, reaction because it, it does make it does make us uncomfortable to talk about things that are unimaginable. I think any of us who have children, the the, the biggest fear that we have is that we might lose one of them and, and the proximity of that, um, that we might feel from seeing somebody else go through it. I think it it scares us and, and, you know, that's not the right reaction, but I think it is, uh, 
it is a predictable one. Anna, I wonder what your reaction is to Adrian. Yeah, um, Adrian, what you said about you know people sort of like falling away, um, it reminded me of what someone told me, which I I just love, which is the op- the opposite way to respond. She said um, she was describing about having lost her grandfather and and talking to a, a stranger about this, like sort of explaining why she was you know having a hard time. I just lost my grandfather. And she said this person turned to her and said, oh, what was his name? And she got to say his name and she got to talk about her grandfather. And, and she realized like what an uncommon interaction that was as she was in grief to get to say, well, let me tell you a little bit about him that people just don't, don't ask. Um, so I wondered if you wanted to tell us the name of your son. Yeah, Adrian. If I wanted to do what again? Tell us the name of your son. What was your son's um, name? Uh, Benny Frank Brown. Oh, thanks for sharing. Thanks for telling us about Benny. And and thank you uh, very much. This conversation that you're having is very hard. It's even cheerful to mention his name, but Mm. still the conversation must be had to let people know, please don't avoid those people in grief. Just find out what they need. And just by listening, and they'll let you know exactly what they need. If they need nothing from you at that time, that's good, too. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you very much. Adrian, thank you for calling and and, uh, and for sharing that with, uh, with us and the listeners. Okay, when we come back, we are going to continue this conversation with Anna Sale, author of Let's Talk About Hard Things, uh, about how we talk about hard things. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining. My guest this hour is Anna Sale, who is a host of the Death, Sex, and Money award-winning podcast on WNYC in New York. Uh, she's also author of a book called Let's Talk About Hard Things. We're talking right now about how we have difficult discussions uh, in a time where everything looks different than it did Uh, before. And certainly the ways in which we interact with one another are fundamentally different uh, than the way they were before the pandemic. How are you finding ways to find solace in difficult conversations, conversations you have to have uh, for your own emotional well-being? They're more difficult now, I think, because of the disruptions. Um, You can always uh, give us a call, 313-577-1019. 
uh, or go to social media and uh, leave comments there, and we can include you in the discussion that way. Uh, Anna, before I get back to our callers, I, I do want to talk about a, another part of your book, which is about money. And I think mm. money is one of the more interesting things that uh, is difficult uh, to talk about. Um, and there was a part of your book that I just wanted to, to read from that I thought was really insightful about uh, our difficulties with money. You say that the risk that stalls most money conversations is our fear of how we'll look compared to the person that we're talking to. We do a lot of sleight of hand to obscure how we're doing financially. That's true from our most intimate relationships to our national politics. We live in an era when tech billionaires wear jeans and sneakers. Struggling people carry designer purses and doctors and lawyers are drowning in student loan debt. I thought that was a really, uh, really incisive way to talk about uh, both that personal struggle with money and then that, that the cultural problem that I think we have with money. Uh, you also, in uh, another part of the book, talk about the historical problems that we have uh, with money and what it means uh, in in this country. So, so how do we talk about all of these things? How are we supposed to talk about money? Well, I, I think one really important part of that chapter that I really wanted to stress is the, talking about money is, is there's lots of different conversations you're having at the same time. Um, and, and it can get confusing when you don't sort of like think about, huh, like, what am I, what are we talking about here? Um, for example, you know, that passage you just read is so much around money and status anxiety and all these cultural ideas we have around um, sort of appearing like we are part of the great middle class in America, that that's the honorable place to be. Um, and, and you see polling where, you know, there's there's much more of a of a of an instinct to identify as somebody who is in the middle class. Then when you look at income distribution, you know uh, the middle class is getting smaller, but people are still wanting to claim to be in the middle class in the same mm -hmm. way. Um, and so you know when you when you have that instinct to appear like you are like everybody else, what ends up happening is you're not seeing clearly what's actually going on. Um, and so that's sort of the, the macro level of why I think talking more concretely about money is important so we can understand who our economy is working for and who it very much is not working for. Um, but, but I also think, you know, when you talk about money, I write about different partners and marriages in, in the book in that chapter um, where, you know, we have a lot of different cultural values around money and, mm -hmm. and what, how one um, ought to take care of, for example, members of their family of origin, for example. You know, I grew up in a family where in independence was, was sort of the prize and achievement and showing that you could stand on your own two feet. That's very different from other families mm -hmm. where the idea of showing up for each other well into adulthood and in extended families, like, um, you know, that's, that's a very different uh, way of thinking about money. And when you don't have the language to say, oh, in my family, we share. In my family, we do this to take care of each other. And then I can say, oh, huh. Like my family is different than that. Is mm -hmm. that a, is that a set of beliefs and values I want to hang on to, or do I want to sort of loosen it up? Um, but when you don't sort of have the language to describe the 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 
money values that you grew up with to interrogate them, you can have all kinds of misunderstandings when you're trying to make a decision, for example, in a marriage about like, you know, what size mortgage you feel comfortable sure. affording, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, really important, really important things to, to, to these, again, to these relationships that you need to have intact in order to have these conversations about not just money, but but all the other uh, sensitive subjects. Um, yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Let's go back to them with Barbara in Northville. Barbara, what's on your mind? Good morning. This is a fantastic uh, topic. Um, I would uh, like to um, extend my heartfelt condolences to your previous caller mm-hmm. that uh, talked about uh, the loss of her son. Mm-hmm. Um, I, too, uh, have lost my son. Um, and my question, I can identify directly with that caller and what your guest uh, is saying. And I have read Megan Devine's book, It's Okay Not to Be Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and, I, and I ordered your book just now uh, as well. <laughs> and my question is, how do we educate and teach people as we're building these relationships or trying to make that connection, how to bear witness. That that mm. seems to be um, um, something that I struggle with, but I also know it's difficult. It's difficult for the person uh, who's building that relationship with um, as it is for the person who you really want to express on how to bear witness, bear witness. So, so that's a really interesting phrase, uh, bear witness. And I think we were talking about listening earlier, but I, I, I sense that you mean something very different by that. Um, and so, Barbara, before I go back to Anna, I, I want to give you a chance to talk about what what is it in your mind that is – bearing witness. What, what what does that mean? Well, Stephen, you kind of touched on it. I mean, the listening aspect, mm-hmm. um, because um, when we have these conversations such as death and such as grief, uh, people are trying to fix us. Uh, they're trying to um, give us advice on what we should do in order to get through the next moment. That may not necessarily mean that's what is going to help us. Mm-hmm. Um, I often find that in building these relationships and developing this deep trust, um, that it takes a, a, a while. So, you know, having the space for um, people to be able to talk about it without the other person that you're talking about it with constantly interrupt you walk away, uh, don't answer the phone, um, and many other things that come along with yeah. it. Hopefully yeah. I've No, Barbara, I'm, I, no, I'm, I, I'm, I'm absolutely understanding uh, what you're saying and where you're coming from. Uh, Anna Sale, I wonder what your reaction is. Yeah, Barbara, thanks for saying that. When I, when I hear you say bear witness, I think of it as like uh, not just listening, but also having the sort of fortitude to hold what you are hearing. Mm. And, 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 um, and I think that one, your question, how do we sort of teach that in our relationships? I I think one huge way is modeling it in your, in how you interact, you know? Um, 
So if somebody is telling you something difficult, like if being that friend who just listens and says, oh, and like lets it have a beat of just being absorbed, you know, mm-hmm. um, that can feel profound when you are the person being listened to. And also they're seeing, oh, look at how Barbara handled that. That felt maybe in my next conversation where somebody is telling me something heavy, I might try that. Um, and, and I, the other thing that you made me think about was, you know, I've had the, the privilege of coming at hard conversations, um, as a journalist and not as a, you know, I'm not a therapist or a psychologist, you know, no, people don't come to me with the expectation that I, um, will fix things. Um, what motivates my work has always been, uh, I want to understand more clearly what you are going through. And so um, that's sort of the, 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 the where this book came from, which was, you know, ha- when I have had journalistic conversations of saying, oh, you said bearing witness and not listening. Like, what did you mean by that? And, and hearing somebody answer that, then I understand more clearly where they're coming from. And, and I've learned that from doing that as a journalist, when I do that in my relationships, um, when I lead with trying to see the people I love more clearly instead of fixing them mm-hmm. or or comforting them, um, it's a deeper interaction. Yeah, yeah. Barbara, again, really appreciate the call and and sorry, uh, deep, deeply sorry for uh, you uh, losing losing your son as as Adrian did. Boy, that's a, uh, that that just uh, is one of the toughest things I think anyone. Um, can can manage. Um, let's go next to Dr. Longs, who's uh, Wayne calling from the Wayne County Juvenile Detention Facility. Is that right, Dr. Longs? Hi. Yes. Hi. I'm actually I've called in before, but I've never been able to call in as I'm sitting in my office. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm a uh, I'm the uh, mental health director at the uh, Wayne County Juvenile Detention Facility, which okay. is sort of annex to the uh, Wayne County Jail. Right. But, um, you know, as I've listened to the other callers, particularly the moms who've lost sons, it's kind of pretty much what I see every day here. Um, and so I, I want to ask uh, your guests, um, in dealing with grief and bereavement, you know, how you approach that with adolescence, you know, and... There was about two years ago, there was a case in Warren where I kind of got involved in, and I remember writing, you know, based on the tragedy of the case, you know, it's sort of how do you approach parents, um, survivors of trauma, when in essence, it seems like their adolescence has been foreclosed on. Wow. Um, So, you know, I'm I'm preparing my day today, and I look at my... uh, the kids I'm going to try to see today, and it is um, kids who are dealing with trauma. But some of these kids dealing with trauma are actually the perpetrators. So, you know, having a discussion with them with the idea that these are still young people, you know, searching for their own identity, you know, being diffused into different things like gangs, et cetera, and some of the other concepts that came up, um, how they hold on, you know, when I say uh, foreclosure, because yeah. um, they view it as everything's being about money and pride mm-hmm. and, you know, dealing with beasts and mm-hmm. all those sort of things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, revenge is what 
they think the solution is. So right. Dr. Long, sort of, mm-hmm. I really appreciate I really appreciate this call. Uh, and and that perspective, uh, I, I mean, that is that is uh, that is an incredible uh, observation uh, that that you just made. Um, Anna Anna Sale, I want to give you a chance to to respond. Yeah, I mean, thank you for your work, and I and I think you 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 are the expert in your work. But the one one thing that I I think about. Um, uh, whether it's adolescents or, or whether adults, um, you know, being that person where where um, uh, the sort of the, the the guard can come down and the feeling can just be expressed that's underlying um, the pain um, is is that's that's the gift mm-hmm. um, and uh, it, it, it it's not. You can't control when those moments happen. You can't control when that person you're walking into the room to speak with is going to be ready to just feel the feeling. Um, but you can uh, create the opportunity. Um, and and maybe sometimes that's sort of saying, uh, you know, I might have this wrong, but is this something you're you're feeling? Um, or you know, saying, you know, it's kind of just like creating these little openings. Um, you know, I, I, I can remember when I was 14 and I didn't go through what you went through, but this was something I can remember struggling with. Is that something that sounds familiar? Mm. Um, you know, the, those, those little openings where somebody can say, yeah, um, and just have that exchange and feel less alone in that moment. Yeah, yeah. And the, 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 the question about how we talk about these things with young people, I mean, he's talking with them, with young people who are, who are incarcerated, but, but I think all young people are struggling right now with some of these same issues that we have as adults, and it's, it looks different when, when their minds are, are adolescent minds. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of ways that adolescent minds are different than adult minds. But but one way in particular that I I think about is, you know, they've had less time to uh, to to get to accrue the language to even understand what the flood of feeling is. Mm. It's just the feeling, you know. Um, and and so what I I remember as a teenager, kind of like grasping for whenever I found a word that somebody used to explain some feeling that felt resonant with me, it felt like a revelation um, because otherwise it felt like inside my head it was this very foreign, very isolated experience that was only happening to me. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, Anna Sale, it was really fantastic to have you here. Uh, with us for this conversation and congratulations uh, on on the book. It really is uh, a wonderful and insightful read. Thanks so much for being with us on Detroit Today. Oh, thank you for having me and thank you to your wonderful callers for sharing. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that is going to do it for us today. This is 1019 WDET-FM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.